Good morning, everyone. Buongiorno, guten Morgen, buenos dias. Welcome to Love, Joy, and Languages, a podcast about loving languages and finding joy in learning them. I am Heidi, the creator and host of this show, and today I am so excited to share an incredible episode with you all. This is truly a story of finding joy in languages. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of chatting with Dr. Veronica Benavides, founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project and host of Talking to Grandma podcast. Veronica is a heritage Spanish speaker and also a mother raising her children in Spanish as part of a multilingual household. In today's interview, Veronica shares her story of growing up in the U.S. with Spanish-speaking parents who chose to raise their children in English, and while she gained some Spanish in childhood, she walks us through her path to discovering a passion for her heritage language in college. She shares her experiences living in New Mexico as a Fulbright scholar and raising her children in Spanish, even as she herself is still learning so much about the language. Veronica and her husband maintain three languages with their children, and she tells us what that looks like for their family on a day-to-day basis. Something really incredible about Veronica's story is what she and other Latina women are building to help other heritage language speakers on a multilingual, multicultural parenting journey. I encourage all of you to go listen to and share Talking to Grandma podcast and lift up and support Veronica and her team's work on the Language Preservation Project, where they share resources and build community around reversing the trend of language loss across generations. I'll link both of those in the show notes, as well as where they can be found on social media. And now, enough of me and more of Dr. Veronica Benavides. I hope you get so much out of the story she shares and the passion with which she approaches heritage language preservation. Dr. Veronica Benavides, thank you so much for coming to Love, Joy, and Languages. I'm really excited to share this time with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and to be in conversation with you and explore the topic of heritage language language learning. Definitely. So tell our listeners a little bit about you, kind of what brings you to the language learning community and um, as much as you want to share and then maybe jump into some of the work you do or we can get to that as it just kind of unfolds. Sure. Yeah. So what brings me to the language learning community? Well, I feel like I have a a complex history there, uh, but universal, very shared among immigrant and indigenous communities in the U.S. My parents grew up only speaking Spanish and they went to school in South Texas. They were like the first in their generation to go uh, to school. My Actually, my father's family has been in Texas since it was Mexico, um, and they were migrant farm workers. And um, even though they had been in the U.S. for a long time, he was the first in his generation to speak English because he was the first to go to school. And my mother's family was from Guanajuato, Mexico. And so when they went to school um, in South Texas in the 50s, uh, they were physically punished for speaking Spanish. Anytime that they spoke Spanish, it was an English-only environment. And so pretty quickly, they internalized that Spanish was a bad thing in a school environment, that Spanish was not something that was associated with academic success, that Spanish was not something that was associated with upward mobility. And so... Um, They internalized those messages. And when they became parents, they did what all parents do and they want the best for their kids. And so we were raised in an English only environment. And that was also reinforced by teachers who told them that speaking to us in Spanish would confuse us. And so 
I grew up not being able to communicate in Spanish. I couldn't speak to my grandmother, my only living grandmother who um, only spoke Spanish and really was disconnected from this part of my identity in a, in a lot of ways because I couldn't unlock the language. And it always was like very difficult for me to learn the language, even though I had like this wealth of cultural knowledge. I was what you would say, like passively bilingual. I understood the language because I was surrounded by it in my community, but I felt a lot of shame when I spoke it. I felt fearful of making mistakes. Um, and then finally in my 20s, I learned the language. I moved to Mexico and um, I then in my 30s had my first child and was felt like really equipped to raise a bilingual child because I was bilingual myself. And I was at the time the executive director at the Center on Culture, Race and Equity at Bank Street College of Education. So I was creating culturally responsive and linguistically responsive learning environments for children in early childhood learning environments. And I was like, I'm going to have the most bilingual like you know, in touch with his language and culture child ever. And then when I had my son, it just, you know, ripped me open in a way that I never expected that I felt so vulnerable. I felt like all of the issues around language that I had um, that hadn't been resolved came up. And, you know, that feeling of not enoughness and that feeling, that feeling of fear, that feeling of maybe this isn't the right thing to do came back. And it was at that moment that I realized there's something different to language learning when you're a heritage speaker, because it comes with all of this baggage, because it comes with this historical context and this contemporary context, and maybe this, um, this like animosity around the language or things that you might've internalized, no matter how much you try not to. Um, and that's when I started to seek resources specifically for heritage language learners and couldn't find a ton and started the language preservation project as um, an effort to try to build a, a specific culturally responsive trauma-informed approach to language learning for heritage language learners. That is all so deep. And <laughs> um, man, thank you so much for sharing all of that so succinctly as well. The first thing that comes to mind is that it's amazing to me how many people, and I'll say women specifically, and probably even more specifically women of color, create the things that they feel they're, they're missing. And that's how community and support grow are from these, I needed this resource and it wasn't there, so I'm creating it and I'm going to bring in everybody else and we're going to do it together. And that is one of the most powerful things um, I think that comes from the struggles that that we all have or that that we experience in different ways. So the first question I have for you then is when you were learning Spanish, actively learning it in your 20s, how, what did that look like for you? Was that, did you, were you able to deal with some of the heritage emotions at that time or did that not become a thing until you became a parent? So I guess there's two questions there. Right. How did you actually learn Spanish yourself? Mm -hmm. And then when did you really start noticing those blocks and, and those kind of traumas and experiences, emotions, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, I had a strong desire to learn the language. Um, and I guess that desire was like stronger than my fear or shame, which was good because it pushed me out of my comfort zone. And so when I uh, was in my twenties, I applied for a Fulbright grant to go to Mexico. And um, I it was a part of like the English teaching fellowship. 
And um, so I went to Mexico for a year, Mexico City, which was amazing. And I think there it was, it was tough because I look Mexican and, and I'm in Mexico. <laughs> then people like, you know, I totally blend in. And then I talk and they're like, oh, you're not from here. And I'm like, no, I'm not from here. I am from here, but not from here. Um, so that also was an interesting part of, of my identity um, to explore that. And then I would say overwhelmingly people were positive and encouraging and supportive of my language use. But every once in a while, there was someone who would say something that was disparaging of my language or disappointed maybe that I didn't grow up speaking Spanish or, um, you know, I had a, a roommate and went on family vacation with her family, which was wonderful that, you know, many people in Mexico just kind of bring you in in that way. Um, but her father said one time while I was speaking, let's stop, stop speaking with that like American accent. And I was like, well, I can't not like, then I guess I'll just stop speaking. And so I think in many moments, like shame prevented me from speaking and shame prevented me from like putting myself out there more. And I think it was more critical of me because of my family, because of my identity, because of the way that I look than another, like, you know, blonde, light skin, blue eyes, American person that might go there and they would be celebrated for the Spanish that they speak rather than criticized for any mistakes that they make or, or things of that nature. But, but I want to say, looking back as a young person, I probably narrowed in on the negative feedback, like a hundred times more than any of the positive feedback. And it, and this is also what I think is important with language learners to like have a mindset shift and to know that anytime there's a criticism of your language, that is, that's probably about them and not about you. And to really internalize that, you know, what I internalize later as an adult is that like any, any Spanish that I speak is actually an act of resistance because it was physically beaten out of my family. So I should be proud of like anything that I can do because it, it shouldn't be period. I shouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. I hope any listener who needs to hear that message hears it because that is incredibly powerful and so strong that that you're right. The language was was shoved out of communities, shoved out of people, and the resistance is beautiful and strong. This makes me wonder too, have you or other heritage learners that you've spoken with, that you've connected with, do you all deal with talk about generational trauma? Because the trauma that your parents experienced physically being punished and then that caused them not to speak to you and you're taking on that burden as well as your own personal connection to the language is that something that you all deal with much in language preservation project yeah definitely um so we have two kind of flagship programs our language preservation teaching collective and our language preservation family collective and for both of those programs we start with the history power and politics of language in the u.s and we help people to situate language loss within a system and to help them understand that like since the founding of the U.S., language loss has been a tool for political control, for the seizure of land, for disempowering communities. We look at, you know, Native American 
boarding schools, we look at Japanese internment camps, we look at, you know, the foundations of um, the U.S. schooling system and, and the push for monolingualism. And I think this historical perspective and contemporary, because it still exists in a lot of institutions, helps people to be gentle with themselves, helps people to understand that it actually might have been trauma that causes some of this complex relationships with their language. And for me, and for a lot of people, I think it can be that they like internalize it, that it's my like personal failure, that I don't speak this language. And I think it's really important to, to give ourselves grace and to look at our language use and language preservation in a strength-based perspective, um, because that's what's needed for us to heal. That's what's needed for us to feel motivation. And that's what's needed for us to feel connection, which are all kind of the foundational elements of language learning. Mm -hmm. And that's really important too, from the, you know, there's people who feel like it's their fault, that it's their failure, not learning the language. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have heritage learners who feel maybe resentment toward their parents for not mm -hmm. just speaking the language. If you had only spoken to me what you knew, this could have all been, you know, taken care of. But there's, especially in teaching that history and that connection, there's the potential for a healing in relationships between parents and children and bringing the humanity and the reality of their situation and things that maybe they haven't dealt with in themselves, the parents, bringing that humanity and finding some grace and um, compassion for realizing that their situations weren't the same. You know, language learning is a privilege in in so many cases, especially native speaking cultures. It's a privilege to be able to speak your native language in many places mm -hmm. and being able to understand that history and where parents may have found themselves at the time can potentially be a really healing process between the parents who chose not to go bilingual with their children and the children themselves who are wanting to acquire that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think when I became a parent, I was able to really shift that perspective because I did hold that for a long time that like, oh, my parents, you know, speak Spanish. If they just would have spoken to me in Spanish, then I would be bilingual. <laughs> Number one, that's not true because a lot of people can speak to their kids in Spanish and, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stick. Right. So it's, I think that's also a misconception about like the ways that children become bilingual there. There's a lot more to it than that. And then I would also say that I was really fearful that me speaking to my child in Spanish would not be enough or would mess them up in some way because like, I'm not a perfect Spanish speaker or all of these like fears that I had as a parent helped me to understand maybe some of the inhibitors that my parents had too. I realized like, yeah, they did speak Spanish, but also they were educated in English. And so they felt, and, and they were affirmed by their feelings when they went to their high school Spanish class and they were like failing it because they couldn't read and write in Spanish. They only spoke the Spanish of their parents of their home, which, you know, their, their parents didn't go to school. And so I think they felt maybe also a bit of insecurity about the language that they spoke. And I think that's also important for us in our work at the language preservation project that like sometimes, um, big language like Spanish that sometimes is taught in school can also, uh, what is it? 
like not affirm or negate the many different Spanish dialects or the many different ways that we arrive to Spanish. And so that can also create complex relationships to the language of like, oh, my Spanish isn't good enough or doesn't belong here or isn't like worthy of being passed down. And I speak sp stronger English. So that's, you know, what I'm going to pass on to my kid because ultimately parents just want the best for their children. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance to language that I think many of us, especially those of us who grew up monolingual in an area that was totally monolingual, we have no cultural connection to another language. It's really hard to at first grasp all the nuances with learning a language. It, it there's the emotional side, there's the the trauma side, the cultural side, and like you said, all those, the different dialects and the different ways people speak. And I know with a lot of people who say immigrated to the U.S. decades ago, the language has evolved from their native places. That language has evolved. And so when they come here with the language they have, they're not evolving necessarily with the language. They're not in the communities that are evolving the language. So that's a change too, because you may speak a different Spanish than even your family does now because they're changing with the times and their vocabulary is coming along. Um, and so there's so much identity and um, acceptance perhaps that comes along with learning a heritage language and keeping that connection to culture and community and family. It, it's so much bigger than just learning the language, just learning high school Spanish. It's yeah. so much more than that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that, in my perspective can be really like demonstrated in the evolution of Spanglish, right? And how words have like evolved and meshed and all of that. And I think for a long time, that being like a, a bad thing or like Spanglish isn't good, it's not like really English or it's not really Spanish. And I think uh, that's really important to allow people to, to have that because it is an evolution. It is uh, a form of communication. It is a language and it is uh, culturally and regionally specific. Mm -hmm. And I think that it could easily be a gateway into for people who have more resistance to learning their heritage languages. If there's like a middle ground there, like Spanglish may be that middle ground that's just enough to to keep a tether, to keep a tie. Um, mm -hmm. to, to those things that are important. So how much, especially when I'm thinking about people who are resistant to learn their heritage languages, but still have cultural and community ties that still keep them connected because language and community are so intertwined. How does the Language Preservation Project in, in your all's work amplify culture or utilize culture and cultural bonds in a way that helps people connect to their languages in maybe um, a better way, a more traumatic response way. I don't know if that's the right verbiage or what. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Um, and I think for us, it is really important to show, uh, like I said, the like connection is the heart of bilingualism, particularly for heritage language speakers, because of the like intentional effort to disconnect us from that language and community. And so uh, we work with families and parents and a lot of our work with families and parents is about, you know, their healing, their mindsets, but we also prepare them to work with children and um, with, you know, with their children, early age children. And with that, we really want to help them to show joyful, um, like positive representations of language interaction and language use, and particularly having children seeing themselves in their narratives 
and their identities reflected in the language learning experiences. And so one of the things that we did, because before launching the language preservation project, we did like a big six month community based design process, even though everybody who started the organization is a heritage language speaker. Um, we wanted to ensure that this really came from the community. So in our design process, we learned from folks that there was just like a big disparity and inequity in bilingual materials and Spanish materials in the community. And then oftentimes um, these materials were like translated from English in a poor way, or there wasn't a translation and people are trying to make their own uh, materials. And also that these materials are culturally agnostic. Um, and not specific. So there's a lot of use of like just animals or um, very, a lot of times, which is confusing because a lot of Spanish speakers are Latinx, um, darker skin, brown, black, like all of the different things across that. But the if you look at the images of some of these books or um, materials, curriculum, it's lots of light skin, white presenting people. Um, and not doing things that are very specific to the Latino community. And so we developed a curriculum that was culturally responsive, that showed all of the many different aspects of the Latinx identity, not just from one geographic um, regional context that included different dialects from different parts of the diaspora. And um, it's been really well received. We We've gotten a lot of positive feedback from families, children, and parents. And so now we're actually working on turning that into an app, which is exciting um, to try to make it more accessible to, to more folks. But I, I think that that is kind of, you know, our approach that we take of like, children should be excited about language learning. Children should feel connected to the language. They should see themselves reflected in it. Uh, they should feel a sense of connection to the to the stories and the activities. And, and there should be a real like cultural specificity in order to make that connection. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, in your introduction that whenever you became a mother is when you've really, really started to face more of the emotional side of being a heritage learner and even question if it's right for you, if it's right for your family and your children. So what types of, other than creating the language preservation project, what kind of resources or community or, or outreach, what things worked for you that you can share with listeners who find themselves in the same struggling situation? Mm -hmm. Great question. I would say one of the most important things that worked for me was like, mindset shift because I I remember very specifically in the like first days of having my son you're very much for me I had him in January very much was in the house um and it was a few days before I went outside for our first walk and I remember in the home I'm like trained as an educator for many years worked in early childhood and I knew that having a language rich environment is very important. So, you know, we would be inside and I would be narrating everything, even though, you know, he can't understand me that, that I knew the benefits of speaking to him a lot and narrating that. So um, as he's changed, as we're changing his diaper, I'm speaking to him in Spanish and, you know, telling him, ahorita vamos a quitar el pañal y tenemos que levantar este pie y así, blah, 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 so on, so on. And then when I took him outside, I felt myself like go mute because I was 
a, like there were people around me all of a sudden and I was afraid like are they going to hear me speaking Spanish and think like oh what is she doing speaking Spanish with that accent to her child like did I like mess up the conjugation of that verb like did I use the wrong word or what have you I was just fearful of all of these like native Spanish speakers around me imaginarily like judging me and then I I really had to work on my mindset to be like you know I'm I'm learning the language still I'm reclaiming the language I want my son not to inherit my oppression my fear my shame I want him to inherit my liberation and what does that look like? That looks like owning my accent. That looks like having pride in it and, and showing that that is a sign of, of speaking two or more languages, which is great. I want him to know that the goal of bilingualism isn't perfection, it's connection. I want him to know that that I'm a learner and that making mistakes is okay and not such a scary thing. And so I think once I made that mindset shift of like, what do I want my son to inherit from me? That's when I was able to really shift my perspective and my behaviors and attitudes. And then from there, I did like more technical things because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish and I learned it as an adult. I didn't know a lot of like, you know, baby vocabulary and things like that. So I actually found a language partner in Mexico, which was the dialect that I was trying to learn who he was trying to uh, raise his daughter in English and speak to her exclusively in English. He was an English speaker, but only um, used it in his work environment. So lacked that kind of baby vocabulary as well. So we would meet weekly and we would bring our questions. I would ask him about things in Spanish. He would ask me things about um, in English. And sometimes I would even record conversations with my son and, and play it to him and he could you know, let me know like, oh, you could have said it this way and it would have been more natural or things like that. So I will say like, I also continue to learn um, and continue to develop my my language during that um, period as well. Like when I was breastfeeding, you know, they're just kind of like lying there for a while. It can be a 30 minute feed or something like that. Um, so I started, you know, using flashcards for like vocabulary and things like that. So I would say I like, I deleted social media from my phone so that like, if I grabbed my phone, it was reviewing these vocabulary words that I needed to know. So those are also some technical things that I did to like help me become more confident and fluent in the language. Mm -hmm. I really like the whole mindset mind shift thing. Um, of course, that's kind of really what I talked about on this podcast is my story and shift of mind shift, mind shift of mindset away from perfectionism in particular. And something that I, I feel like I'm hearing in you too. And I find it interesting because you're educated in education and you understand childhood education and development. And then you're thrown into the, uh, you know, the situation of being a parent and it makes you start to question your ability. It's one mm -hmm. thing to be educated in something and be able to do it professionally and then to be put to the task in your own life with something you love and want the best for is a different scenario. And so I'm wondering how much, and I think I have an idea, how much your knowledge and education in this parenting situation, how much perfectionism and perhaps imposter syndrome related to education or also as a heritage speaker, how much do those play a role in those early times of being a parent wanting to share your heritage language with your child? Oh yeah. I mean, great question. I think 
<laughs> I was educated and received my doctorate in education from Harvard, which is like, I want to frame as like a funny juxtaposition because while I'm learning all of this about like what creates ideal learning environments, like what's needed in terms of like child development and things like that. I'm in a context in which uh, it's like very competitive to get there. Like there's a lot of perfectionism in terms of like the assignments in, that you're doing and the things that you turn in and um, the learning environment that you're in is not like reflective of the, you know, theory or research that you're studying. And so I think also there's a lot that I did to get there um, to get to the point where I could study at a place like that at a, advanced degree like that. Um, and I, I, you know, grew up in a community in a school district where very few of us went to college in the first place. And then from college to master's to doctoral degree, like there was a certain level of perfectionism that I had to internalize in order to, I don't say I had to, but that I did internalize in order to get to where I was. And so I think there was a there was a real um, conditioning of many years that I had to release. Um, I think there's also when you study at a place like that, there's also a bit of like performance in terms of like who knows the most and can say the most and all of that. And then when I'm thrown into Spanish, I'm like I can't demonstrate my like intellectual like how smart I am in this language because it's hard. And I think that that was really um for me a humbling experience and also like a release of how I'm perceived and a release of the the way in which I communicate things if it's the most eloquent or beautiful way and really just focusing on am I making connections am I able to um, build relationships in this language and, and that's the most important thing mm -hmm. and then the the realization that you want to show your child reality of mm -hmm. I'm not perfect at this language I am learning it it's it's not about perfection it's about communication I think that builds a really good pathway for being able to further bond with your child because now as as kids grow up and they feel like they're doing something together with us instead of just being the authority figure you have a connection with the language and a connection of learning the language and growing together with it is such an incredible potential for an extra bond that mm -hmm. that perhaps other parents may not have yeah yeah and I will say I think that that also um it's it, for me it's really important because Spanish is not my first language it's a language that I'm still using stretching learning every day and and I speak to my children in Spanish but at points where I feel like I can't explain something in Spanish I'll explain it to them in English and they know like Spanish is not my first language. Like I speak English better than I can speak Spanish. And sometimes I'll need to explain things to you in English. And I think that also gives them a model for how to communicate as well. When, when multilingualism, because my kids are multilingual, it's not like they're all the same level all the time. Sometimes they feel more fluent or stronger in one language than another. Um, and so I think for my son, he's really good at being creative and advocating for himself. So um, like sometimes he'll do this, he'll figure out ways to communicate. Like if he can't figure out a word 
in Danish, um, which is one of his languages, he'll ask me to say it in English or he'll ask his father to say, yeah, I'm saying something in Spanish. He'll ask me to say it in English and then he'll say the English word to his father. And so, I mean, he like has figured out ways to navigate languages to like communicate and advocate for himself and understands that like sometimes one will be stronger than the other and that's okay. That's really amazing too, because that shows the kid is taking ownership too. They're taking Mm -hmm. ownership of their language, of their situation and of their own identity. If, if they're able to relatively easy, I say ease with ease in a personal sense, not in a performative Mm -hmm. sense, ease of picking and choosing which language to go with. um, I think that shows a really strong connection to all of those identities and um and like I said ownership of the language mm-hmm. which is something that mm-hmm. especially as heritage learners probably ownership is probably one of the most powerful things that young people can yeah. use yeah. For, yeah for furthering their language what does multilingual parenting look like from your husband's perspective of teaching your children danish mm-hmm. i'm assuming he's a native danish speaker um, but what does that look like in in terms of how you bring Spanish and English and how he brings Danish in to the family situation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we are currently in Denmark. And so the dominant language here is Danish. Um, he, When we were in New York, we had my son in New York. He spoke exclusively in Danish to my son, and then we moved here, and he continues to speak Danish. Then I had my daughter, so he speaks Danish to our children, and the community language is Danish. And because the minority language is English and Spanish, we've decided that in the home, um, so I speak to the children in Spanish, but any type of like media that we do with the kids is in Spanish, because that is the minority language. So... We have a VPN to make sure that we can get Latin American Spanish um, in this home. And um, anytime we have like a movie night on Friday, it's in Spanish or we have yoga time. They do that in Spanish. So there's a, a podcast that we listen to or songs like those are things that we do in Spanish. And I think it's really important that like he's on board with that, that he's supportive of it, that he remembers when I'm not there, that all of that is in Spanish. And then our, uh, we have a babysitter who picks up the kids from school twice a week and she speaks Spanish. And um, we used to go to Spanish class on the weekends, but now we go to swim class. Um, but previously they had a Spanish class. So there is a big focus in terms of like supporting, creating all of our supports in Spanish because I can't be the only input. And he's definitely on board with that and supportive with that. And then English is something that the children hear because that's how my partner and I communicate to each other. And then dinner time we do in English um, so that the children have an opportunity to like practice talking Mm -hmm. English. So we start with the same prompt every day. Like, what are you grateful for today? And we start there and then we, you know, just have different conversations and we have books in all three languages. This sounds truly like my dream world. <laughs> if I can parent like that, that would be amazing. But I want to, my next question is is particularly for listeners who are maybe multilingual or in multilingual households who are really struggling to have any sort of routine, maybe or something structured. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they don't have quite the support of their heritage or native language in the community, other speakers. What kind of 
maybe advice or recommendations or just thoughts would you share with someone who's saying that sounds wonderful? I can do that. But at the same time, I can't, I don't have the community. I don't have the emotions. I don't have the mental stability. I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm failing. Mm -hmm. What kind of thoughts would you share with someone like that? Who's feeling like it's just not happening. Yeah, I would, again, I think this comes back to where we might resonate that like the first thing I think that needs to be done is to work on your mindset, to be more gentle with yourself, to understand that anything is better than nothing. So maybe you're putting a lot of expectations of like, oh, it has to be this way. And I think that's also really important to have that release. Like we're creating the environment but I don't know, my kids at like 10 might say, I'm done with this language and not speak it for a while. Like that is parenting that you can create the environment and and expose your children to what you hope to expose them to. And they're, they're individuals. They get to choose, they get to make decisions around that and that's okay. And so I would recommend to that person in this situation is that they adopt a mindset that is kind to themselves, that is strength-based, that understands that whatever they do is better than nothing. And that understands the importance of like consistency over time as well. So I would say like, start with something small and like start with something maybe we're doing like one extra story a night. Like we still do our story time in English, but guess what? We're doing this extra story and it's going to be in X language. And that becomes a really fun thing. I think we have to approach um, multilingualism with children with like joy and curiosity and like uh, uh, something that gets them excited about it and feeling connected about it. Because when children feel pressure around learning or they feel expectations and they're not going to meet it, then they're, then they're going to shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's especially with language learning, but any learning really that that is not like the best learning environment that you can create for a child. Yeah. That's the message I needed like six years ago <laughs> when we moved to Italy and I was learning the language for the first time and my daughter was four and she was going to the preschool and she totally rejected any Italian that I would try at home. And mm-hmm. I understand it now. She was four. She needed safety. She needed security. Mm-hmm. She needed a connection with me. And school was her time to have Italian where she mm-hmm. didn't understand everything. And there was probably a lot of stressful times there for her where she couldn't communicate. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to bring that into the home and, um, and it definitely created, eventually she grew to love the language, mm-hmm. um, through connections with her friends, but time and place has a really important place. Time and place has yeah. have an important place. <laughs> um, and we have to be able to, no matter how young our kids are, we have to be able to see them as individual human beings yeah. who we're trying to foster into loving things but it is important as parents to respect their boundaries mm-hmm. that they're setting too, because mm-hmm. it's just going to, you know, do the opposite of what we yeah. hope if we're trying yeah. to be authoritative or forceful. It's amazing how um, soon those individual boundaries show up. So we moved to Denmark when I was, uh, when our son was a year and a half and he had been in a Spanish immersion environment, like daycare exposed to a lot of Spanish. Then we moved to Denmark and then he was exposed to a lot of Danish, like Danish everywhere. And there was a point, I think maybe two or three months after we moved here where he would 
like my partner and I would take turns waking him up in the morning. And when it was my morning to wake him up, he would like cry and be upset that I was there um, and wouldn't want to talk to me. And I pretty soon like realized that like he was going through a transition. He was having a tough time. And so I told him in, in Spanish, because I knew he could understand me. You don't have to talk. We don't have to talk. If you don't want to talk, like I know it's a lot of work. We don't have to talk. Like he preferred speaking Danish at that time. And I think it's really important that we are consistent, but also flexible and responsive to what our kids are communicating and um, expressing at that time. And knowing that like, we ha we have language and developmental milestones around language, but we also have like child development milestones and transitions and all of that. And all of those things intersect and it makes the like parenting journey even more complex. Yes, that, that really sort of answers my question I was going to ask, which was, what would you say to a parent whose child is rejecting the language that they're wanting to share with them at any point in time? It could be at one and a half years old. It could be at a transitional time, a, a move to another country, a divorce or anything mm -hmm. else traumatic in a child's life. Um, or when they're older and they just, you know, want to be like everybody else and only speak English. Kids and young people especially can reject language at many points for many different reasons. Um, so what kinds of things would you say to to encourage or just keep some positive feelings within the parent who feels like their efforts are now useless and maybe mm -hmm. feel some personal attack perhaps from mm -hmm. the rejection as well? Mm -hmm. I would say two things. I think like one, if you're just starting, it's really important to um, instill a value or understanding or belief that multilingualism is a superpower, like that is a superpower that their kids have. And so my children from a very young age, like they hear all the time, they internalize it. Like I am trilingual. That is so cool. I can speak three languages. This is great. Here are all the reasons why this is wonderful. Um, my son, like, I think he has like a, he, he speaks three languages. So he maybe also has like a misconception about learning languages. Cause he's like, when I'm six, I'm going to speak Italian. And I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> Not going to happen, but maybe sure. Um, but he views himself as like, that's a part of his identity. So I would say early on, I think that that is going to be a really, uh, good thing for them staying consistent with languages if they view it as a part of their identity. Now, if it's like, you know, you're starting this journey now, or maybe, you know, the child was exposed to the language, the heritage language early on, but it wasn't necessarily something that was like a part of their identity or that intentional around it. Um, and they're starting to reject it because of X, Y, and Z. I would say the first thing is figuring out why they're rejecting the language, having that conversation with them, like what, and, and in different ways, because kids don't always respond to the same prompt. So maybe you want to start with like, why don't you want to speak this language? And maybe they articulate that, but it could be like, what do you feel when other people are speaking this language around you? Like, what does that make you feel? What do you feel when maybe it's English that they're gravitating towards? What do you feel when you hear English? 
And what are some environments in which you feel excited to use this language or thinking about different ways to get more information so that you can then identify like, what is it that needs to change and what is it that needs to stay consistent? Mm -hmm. And I would, I think it's always just important to intersect um, activities that children like with the target language so that they can build positive relationships with it. And that I think is like our main objective with the children is not, you know, perfection around the language of like Danish, English, or Spanish, but that they feel a positive connection to the language and a positive um, sense of identity around that. Mm, absolutely. That's just good parenting advice in general. It doesn't matter. Mm. Whatever your kid is rejecting, mm -hmm. <laughs> finding yes. out why, um, man, that is really, really good advice. So we're coming to the close because we're limited by time. This has been a really insightful conversation for me. And I really appreciate um, you coming here, of course, to share your story and, and some of your personal life where if well tell us more first tell us more about talking with grandma podcast and mm -hmm. then follow up with where our listeners can find you as well yes um so we have a podcast as well it's called talking to grandma and it's called talking to grandma because i couldn't speak to my grandma growing up until i was in my 20s so it, it really focuses on stories of parents uh teachers researchers different thought leaders in the field around the issue of language loss and language preservation. We also talk about culture and um, intersections with child development and parenting. And so it's a really great podcast. Though Spanish is my heritage language, we have a lot of different identities represented on the podcast. We have um, Chinese Mandarin, uh, we have French Creole, we have Aymara, um, so different languages represented here in different identities and different journeys. And I would say, so if you're interested in hearing about all of the different ways that you could go about heritage language preservation and um, some of the different successes and difficulties and challenges, I think this is a podcast for you. Mm -hmm. And then our organization, the Language Preservation Project, can be found on Instagram, at Language Preservation Project. And our website is thelanguageproject.co, not com.co. <laughs> I will make sure to put those in the show notes as well. And I'll have to say, as, as a not someone who's learning a heritage language, I would also definitely recommend your podcast to any other language learners out there who are just curious because it is a really good way to understand other people's perspectives and stories and how language can, how language has been weaponized, how language can be a form of um, healing and can be connected to trauma. And it's just everything. It provides a different perspective, especially coming from a monolingual who for so many years was angry that I didn't have the privilege to grow up bilingual. Your podcast really shows that I had a privilege of growing up speaking English, period, and to see the humanity of other people's stories and the struggles and the emotional conflict that language can bring up, that language history can bring up, is something that I think everyone can benefit from in many ways. So I highly, highly recommend talking to grandma to anyone <laughs> in the language community um, at all. It is a very, it's just a really, really good show. 
that's my thank you thank you I appreciate that thank you again for being here Veronica if there's anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with it's all yours um it's been such a pleasure being on this show and I would just encourage um, folks to be gentle on themselves to honor the work that they're doing to know that multilingualism, particularly if you're a listener in the U.S., is not the norm, and it is really a difficult journey. So it's important to do in community. It's important to do with others, and it's really important for us to support each other and lift each other up in this process of a better, more compassionate multilingual world. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks.